we don't see this as a theological concern. We don't see the profound impact that our environmental irresponsibility has on the marginalized. We see this as an agenda that belongs to the other, not to us. And my goal is to awaken the faithful to the fact that their Bible, their rule of faith and praxis has a great deal to say about this topic. And we, the church, need to have something to say about this topic as well. Welcome to another episode of the Asia podcast, where we have conversations about sharing the good news of Jesus, the people and places of East Asia, and how we might fit in. I'm your host, Chris Watts, part of the communications team at OMF UK. In this episode, we're sharing a conversation we had last year with theologian, author, and speaker, Sandra Richter. The discussion is led by Peter Rowan, and focuses on topics from Sandra's book, Stewards of Eden. Sandra is passionate about getting Christians to explore how as followers of Jesus, transformed by the gospel and convicted by the authority of the Bible, we should see that God is concerned with how we relate to, live in and make use of creation. It was a fascinating conversation with lots of thought-provoking moments, and we hope there's plenty for you to take away from it. Enjoy. I'm really delighted to welcome you, Professor Sandra Richter. You're our special guest to give a, a sort of formal introduction to, to you. Uh, Professor Richter is the Robert H. Gundry Chair of Biblical Studies at Westmont College in California. And Professor Richter has a PhD from Harvard in Hebrew Bible and is the author of several commentaries on Deuteronomy and Isaiah and has published books including um, The Epic of Eden and most recently the one that's on all of the desks here, Stewards of Eden, what scripture says about the environment and why it matters. So we're incredibly grateful that you've joined us today all the way from California, uh, 6 a.m. in the morning for you. So thank you. It's, it's, a, it's a very civilized, you know, just after two in the afternoon here. Oh, uh, yeah. That's, that's just not right. <laughs> now, I, I've given you a, a, a little bit of a sort of formal introduction there, um, really for, for the benefit of the people who haven't already Googled you. But, but would you like to just tell us a little bit more about yourself, uh, where you're from, what you love to do when you're not teaching, researching and writing? Well, as you say, I'm uh, currently in Santa Barbara, California, which is uh, Southern California. And uh, interesting for uh, y'all who are across the pond, uh, Southern California is a whole different animal. It, it's kind of... My, my family talks about how we moved to the to this new country of of California, um, and especially SoCal, where Hollywood and LA and all of those things that we get to hear in the news all the time are are real. They're real. Like I've hung out in Malibu, and I, I didn't see Miley Cyrus there. I, I was. <laughs> 
But I love to do everything that is outdoors. Um, I love to hike. We have some amazing hiking trails out this way. Uh, I love to be on the shoreline, although the the ocean is a bit chilly here for this this East Coast girl. Um, I'm a big gardener. I have a tassel of chickens in my backyard. Um, those are the things I like to do when I'm not teaching and researching. Um, my teaching and researching, I'm interested in, in all things Bible. And I especially am interested in contexts. So my degree at Harvard was all about putting the Bible into its larger context in, you know, in, in the task of exegesis, we're always talking about context, 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 but typically we, we're talking about inner Bible context. So um, archaeology and historical geography and Assyriology and all of those things that put our biblical narrators in their socio-political cultural um, environment, I find fascinating at every level. And so that's who I am. How I got into this is I actually started in ministry and my concern for both the marginalized, uh, be uh, the, the marginalized of, of Adam's race and how this uh, amazing gift that God has given us continues to be marginalized as well. Um, just uh, the, the, those are not just interests for me. Those are our heart commitments that uh, that keep me up at night. So that's that's how I got into this gig. Wow, that's really helpful. Thank you. Um, I can't imagine how how the water in California might be cold. <laughs> but you know, if you come to the UK, we'll we'll take you to the north coast of Ireland and we'll introduce you to cold bathing. <laughs> But, um, I, I, I did. I did get to go to Belfast uh, right before COVID hit. I'm on the NIV translation committee, and they met in Belfast. And first of all, that is the funnest accent I've ever heard in my life. Um, every time I went to a restaurant or a pub, and they would start talking to me, I would just lose myself in you know we and we we'd little that. Um, and, and then they'd have to remind me to order, but I didn't try to get in the ocean. So there's, there's yeah. a good still to wins. do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All, 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 uh, all for creation care. Yeah, we can do that. So let's talk about the book. Um, Sandra, yes. could you give us your elevator pitch for stewards of Eden? <laughs> I, I love the elevator pitch. Yes. Um, I was asked once what my big idea is, which I think is similar. And my big idea in writing the book and in the speaking that I do on the topic is my hope is to awaken a sleeping giant and to fill her with a wonderful resolve. And I think that I am identifying the sleeping giant in that phrase as the evangelical wing of the church. And when I say evangelical, I mean Whitfield, Wesley, um, you know, the, the big, the big story of, of who we are. Uh, I think that the church has fallen asleep on this topic. I think we've become deeply confused on this topic. And so we're missing an action on this topic. So often when I literally am on that elevator, when I self-identify as a Christian, 
um, a Bible-believing Christian or an evangelical Christian, people are stunned that I'm invested in this topic. And that, I think, is evidence. It is um, diagnostic of the fact that the church has gotten so lost. We don't see this as a theological concern. We don't see the profound impact that our environmental irresponsibility has on the marginalized. Uh, we see this as an agenda that belongs to the other, not to us. And my goal is to awaken the faithful to the fact that their Bible, their rule of faith and praxis has a great deal to say about this topic. And we, the church, need to have something to say about this topic as well. Yeah, that's great. I, and I think we, many of us in this room will resonate with that because our constituency is not necessarily one that will see the relevance of this in the context of an organization that's committed to the mission of God and sharing the gospel yes. with East Asian peoples. So can you tell us, Sandra, how, how did you get started on writing such a book? And maybe you want to reference your previous book, but how did you get started on this? So again, my own personal experience is that experience of how lost the church is. And because of, and, and when I first became a Christian, I already had these concerns. I had spent a great deal of my uh, adolescence. I, I became a Christian in my late teens. Uh, just uh, how, how do you even explain what happens when you get lost in the woods? You know, how do you explain what happens when you realize that you've been walking along the shore for three hours and, and you have been overwhelmed by the beauty of God's creation and you've been hearing his voice in, in, in prayer as you're having this experience. So I stepped into my new faith with a deep empathy and profound respect for uh, creation as it was. And when I stepped into my faith, I was basically told, get your head on straight, girl. There are way more important things that you should be dealing with than this. And I believed that and, um, and so kept kind of shoving that other set of concerns to the side, uh, but it never disappeared. So every job I had, I started a recycling program. Every committee I served on, um, somehow or another, this topic came forward. And there were two big junctures as a professor where I would say, I realized I needed to write this book and I needed to begin to speak on this topic. And the first was when I was serving in Asbury Theological Seminary, which is a Wesleyan institution in central Kentucky, great group of people. And there is an annual missions conference there. And it's usually a conference that attempts to connect our young seminarians with uh, global organizations like OMF and, you know, an array of other groups that are out there on the ground doing it and helping our young ministers get connected. Well, that year, our courageous leader, Christine Pohl, she's an ethics professor, uh, floated the idea of environmental concern. And I, honestly, the, the UK is so far ahead of the States on this. I, I'm embarrassed to say that that was 2005. You know, you would, you would think that the first time this had been floated would be 95 or 85, but no, it was 2005. And they asked me if I would speak. They were hoping that I could be their champion in the midst of this, but 
This is the first time I had spoken from a pulpit on this topic. And I was terrified uh, because I had no idea if the room was going to blow up. Although I'm not, I'm not generally a shrinking violet. You know, I, I, I definitely recognized the um, drama of the moment. So I prepped for that little 20 minute sermon harder than I probably prepped for anything in my life. And I realized that if I was going to speak to this community, I needed to speak through their means of authority, right? This is basic rhetoric, but do we ever really think about it? And so I wanted to make it absolutely crystal clear that this was a biblical issue. And so in that little sermon, I I didn't um, address the things on the margins so much. You know, I went, I went straight for what I see in the text. And because I'm an Old Testament professor, uh, and there's a great deal of agriculture, uh, animal husbandry, um, preservation of the land for the sake of the preservation of the populace in the Old Testament, it wasn't hard. But for that crowd, it was brand new uh, because most, <laughs> most people don't read their Old Testaments. What is that about? Uh, so um, that was the first time. And we had such a strong response. And part of it was launching, you know, here's, it's 2005, this is an educational institution, we produce enough paper to create our own rainforest, and we have no program. So part of the energy of that meeting was poured into this recycling program. And I learned a lot of great lessons about getting the guys on the ground invested in these topics. That was the first time. And then the Institute of Biblical Research, which Peter, I'm sure you bumped into, um, they also decided to float this and I pushed for it. And they said, we're going to do it. You get to be the speaker. And (laughs) so once again, prepped really hard. Uh, It's not often that you give a paper in an academic context where you feel the Holy Spirit descend on the room. And I did. The room just in the best possible way shut down and you could have heard a pin drop. And so that was the next big juncture. Then came this course at Wheaton College. And I tell these, at least a number of these stories in the book. And Kristen Page is a very well-respected biology professor. She's an endowed chair at Wheaton College and a great human being. And also deeply, deeply involved in issues of environmental concern. And because she comes from the Southeast in the U.S., and that would be the political region where environmentalism is laughable, she had done almost all of her education with outdoorsmen folks who own uh, three different sets of camo and six different uh, types of hunting guns. Um, So this is a real cultural reach for her, but she also had learned this other side of people who are invested in maintaining this planet and all its glory. So we united, uh, got a special grant to teach this class. We were both working moms, crazy busy. It wasn't as organized as we wanted it to be, but we're in there, right? And I tell the story in the book that we did this very innocent icebreaker. Every prof has deployed it at some point in time. Tell us who you are, what your major is, and why you decided to take this class. And every single student in the room said pretty much the exact same thing, which was, I'm a passionate believer. I, well, I need a science credit. And that was in there too. But I've never heard the message from my home church, from my pastor, from my constituency, 
that I was allowed to love God's good earth and to love God at the same time. And uh, although I have always been deeply invested in fill in the blank, you know, some of them were surfers, some of them were forest people, some of them came from a line of farmers. Um, I was never allowed to incorporate this love with this love. And I have never been invited to advocate for my love and concern for the environment. So I was so excited when you took, uh, decided to teach this class. So by the time we got around the room, Kristen and I were both speechless. And part of the reason we were speechless is we had the exact same testimony. At that moment, somewhere in that 45 minutes that I realized I needed to write this book and I needed to write a book that the most conservative high view of scripture, the Bible is my faith and praxis, that person could read and could hear loud and clear from their source of authority that this is what God cares about. And if this is something God loves. Obviously, it is something his people need to love. So those were huge events. Um, I think, Peter, I would throw the last bit in there, uh, coming again from my previous book, which is a lifetime of work. This whole business that the planet is going to be resurrected, not just that the great work of redemption is not simply a task of fire insurance, for the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, but this is a cosmic plan that intends to restore the, the great first plan of an Eden that functions with humanity in the midst. Um, realizing that great arc was a huge part of my journey as well. So that's a, a answer to- No, that's great. That's, that's super helpful. Thank you. And in your interactions with students and with church leaders and others at these sorts of events, what are the, what are the common myths in the mm -hmm. church about creation care? Yes. Well, I, I speak of that a lot in the introduction that I would distill the three great hurdles for the people of faith into three things. And in the States, it, uh, politics is huge. Now, again, right before COVID, I was at the London School of Theology and they asked me to present on this, which was tons of fun. And uh, they give a public lecture every year in this, oh, so cool old um, uh, church building. And goodness, I, just the architecture alone, I could have stayed there all day. But the title and message is a title I've used in the States a few times, which is, can a Christian be an environmentalist? And these lovely Brits showed up and said, what are you talking about? Um, your title alone is off-putting. How can a Christian not be an environmentalist? So your, you know, your political environment is, is different from ours. And in those conversations, I heard that your candidates for prime minister were fighting over who could be greener. And it's like, to have that problem in the States. Um, so, so in the States, uh, environmentalism has been pigeonholed in a, into a particular political party. And for us, of course, it's the Republicans and the Democrats. And so in our world, if you are pro-life and therefore you recognize and honor 
um, uh, humanity as made in the image of God, you're going to be a Republican. Mm-hmm. If environmentalist, you're going to be a Democrat, which by this strange sort of logic devolves into this perception that if you're an environmentalist, you also are a baby killer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and politically, it is very difficult to bridge that gap. So we've got a lot of the community of faith in our country that thinks that environmental concern is one of the agenda points of the enemy. And so environmental concern has been pigeonholed over here with radical left-wing politics. So a big thing I do every time I speak is remind the people of God that they are citizens of another kingdom and that there is no government on this planet that has truly embraced the kingdom of God and we should not be painting our personal nationalism over uh, our covenant identity as the people of God and citizens of another kingdom. Our moral code always has and always must supersede our politics. So that's always an issue. And it's very interesting to me in the States, again, uh, even though there's so much conversation about this, for some reason, people have never thought this through. And, but it's a friendly rebuke. And because honestly, once the rebuke comes through, people are like, oh, of course, I, I should not be tagging the wagon of Christian faith and the building of the kingdom onto the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. Okay, so that's an issue. I think a second issue that is an enormous hurdle for all of us is that we don't actually see the impact of our environmental irresponsibility. We have solid functioning governments that make sure that our toxic waste, our countless quantities of trash, that um, poisoned rivers and lunar landscapes are not visible to the average citizen. We don't see it. And so often uh, this would be true of, of any missions endeavor. Once you get there and you actually see how people are living as a result of poverty or corrupt government, or in this case, environmental irresponsibility, we're all over it, but we don't see it. So that is a big issue, I think, with all issues of social justice. And then the third one, and I spend a a fair amount of time on this in the book, is our misread of the New Testament. We do not see the great arc of the resurrection of this planet. Uh, We have not lingered over Romans chapter eight and Paul's message about the resurrection of the heirs of God and the planet. And we have been taught and have embraced a certain form, dare I say, of dispensationalism that has the this amazing planet wiped out, burned up, evaporated, and fully replaced with something brand new. So there's this perception that if it's all going to burn anyway, uh, we might as well use up this environment as aggressively as we can for that which matters most, the salvation of souls. And on the one hand, this is a commendable ambition that you know we're willing to put it all on the line for the sake of winning new citizens to the kingdom, but it is a misread of the New Testament. So those are the three big hurdles as we talk 
to the people of God in this generation. Yeah, thank you. I, even though our context is different, Sandra, there are overlaps. And I think many of us in the room here will resonate with those myths and those barriers in some shape or form. Um, when it comes to your research and how you how you unpack and, that. And Peter, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah go just, ahead. Just to interrupt there, I would love to hear at some point more about your context. Yeah. I was only in London for a few days for those lectures and I, you know, I could tell that many of my issues were unique to the American context. I would love to hear more because from where I sit, your national legislation, your local legislation, you've taken some major steps forward on so many of these topics. And although some of the solutions are still projected out into the future, they're on the books. Yeah. So I'm, you know, if we get time, I would love to hear. Sure. Yeah, we, yeah we, could maybe, we could maybe uh, discuss some of that towards the end when we have a Q&A okay. time. Um, mm -hmm. But when, when you are unpacking your research in particular uh, with, with church leaders and students and others, um, what is it that you wish people understood mm -hmm. about your area of research, particularly in relation to creation care and the environment, Sandra? Are there, are there things that you just wish they would get Honestly, Peter, I, I have had generally excellent experiences when I get in front of a crowd. Part of it is because I, I, think it is, I think it's fairly transparent that I love what they love. Typically in the audiences, we all love the kingdom and we love the book. So uh, when I enter through those, those points of entry, I usually get a good reception. Now, I have been thrown out of a few things, and I have had a few walkouts. And there was one time I was in Nebraska with an entire auditorium of cattle farmers where there was a moment I thought they were going to start throwing things. But um, <laughs> uh, And it was one of those very practical moments uh, where, where the Holy Spirit shows himself very practical. I was talking about humane animal husbandry, and I was unaware that my audience was all first generation cattle farmers. So they were all in suits and ties and, and looking like CEOs. But in reality, every one of them had wrestled a bovine to the ground at some point in time. <laughs> and they were, they were just outraged that some skinny little white chick was showing up and telling them how to deal cattle, you know, and, and, and that is understandable. There was a moment during the Q&A where someone basically said, what the heck do you know? I mean, it was much more articulate than that, but you know about uh, actually staying afloat as, as a farmer. How, what do you know about the finances and the realities of the industry? And in that particular exchange, I was standing there in my little suit while they're standing there in their little suit. And I'm dead meat. You know, <laughs> yes, I have never wrestled an 800 pound um, meat cow to the ground. Um, and the Holy Spirit was very practical and very helpful. And it occurred to me that I was talking to a man who had helped deliver a breech calf in at three in the morning. And I was able to respond, look, gentlemen, we all know that real farmers don't treat their animals this way. 
and and the room just it in the best possible way it just went quiet mm-hmm. you're we would never treat our animals that way so why in the world are we allowing industrial agriculture to treat our animals that way so a number of those moments it, generally for me it's been um the basic logic of empathy if i am doing my best to step into the shoes of my audience i am tagging the sources of authority that they embrace i i get a hearing generally i hope you're enjoying the conversation so far i just wanted to remind you that we're on instagram we're at surveyor podcast why not follow us for extra content from our guests as well as news and resources. We love to hear from our listeners in the comments or via a DM, so please do join in. Now, back to the episode. It's interesting, getting a new pushback these days though, especially from my undergrads. They don't feel that I am edgy enough. Um, they, you know, they want me to, to push further into what again is a political agenda for them. And, they, as is so common in the church, are following a cultural wave. And um, yeah, so they'll, again, they'll feel that I'm not edgy enough. And I'm sitting there saying, and honestly, I'm sitting there saying, sweet pea, you're 19. <laughs> there, are, there are three generations that stand ahead of you that actually hold the purse strings. And that's who I'm after. Um, Now, I and let me rephrase that. I'm after the whole crowd. I I wanted to write a book that an undergraduate who, in my world, uh, is struggling with their faith because they think that their faith has failed them. They have this this issue that is so profoundly important to them, and they don't see it on the pages of the New Testament, and they've never heard it from the pulpit. And I want to grab that 19-year-old, and I want to say... Your your church might have failed you on this topic, but your faith has not. Mm-hmm. And let me show you where the God that you are thinking about and maybe thinking about um, cutting and running, that this God is, is deeply invested in this topic. So that is a primary motivation for me. I want those 18 to 22-year-olds to see that this issue lives and breathes in their Bible. Mm-hmm. But I want them to be able to take that book home. And I want them to be able to hand it off to their parents who have had a lot more life experience and uh, probably are Republicans. And I want them to be able to see that this issue lives and breathes in their Bible. And if I really have scored, I want them to be able to hand it off to their grandparents. And although the message might be even less familiar to that generation, once again, Yes, your rule of faith and praxis addresses this. Yes, this is embedded in the character of your God. And if it is embedded in the character of your God, and if it's censured and limited the economy and the society of Israel, why should it not censor and limit the economy of the United States of America mm. or the U.S.? Mm. Yeah, great answer. Mm. Um, Sandra, there, yeah, it's just to ask you, how would you respond to those scholars who say that the language of stewardship is a little Mm. unhelpful when talking about Christian responsibility for the environment? You may have come across some of that critique. Um, Yeah. yeah, What would your response to that be? 
So I have an um, an encyclopedia article I had to write years ago that really laid out the various approaches to environmental concern. And um, one major school of environmental concern is bioethics and mm -hmm. the idea that trees and rocks and rivers and animals should have ethical rights right up there with humanity. And that whole wing, um, although it might do some good things to our governments or uh, to our uh, industries, it, I don't find that Christian faith can find a place in that agenda, largely because they're soft pantheists is what they are, um, and that uh, uh, creatures on this planet are, are not um, ontologically unique from humans. So I don't find that agenda helpful within uh, the camp of dealing with this theologically, I find the stewardship motif most helpful. So just sort of to lay that groundwork, um, people who struggle with the idea of stewardship, the reason they struggle is because they see the dominion language in Genesis 1 and 2, and they interpret dominion um, according <laughs> to European history as opposed to Genesis chapter one and two, and what they see in the words of dominion and rulership and authority is colonization, exploitation, and a cut and run uh, focus that, as we all know, is very prevalent in current conversations on equity on the planet, from racism to you name it. So, and you know, I'm speaking to an audience in the UK and the only people on the planet within that conversation who are more guilty than me over here on the other side of the pond is you. So I'm glad someone gets it worse than we do. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I think that's why they struggle with the stewardship language. So that's why in the book, I spent a little bit of time with that language. And because of the theological structure of the Old Testament and this whole international treaty covenant concept that is built into the way God reveals himself to humanity. And I'm talking about Susan Vassal treaties, um, international treaties. I'm going to assume you guys are familiar with that concept. Uh, the Sinai covenant is much a, a photocopy of a second millennia uh, Hittite treaty between uh, the Egyptians and the Hittites. This is the motif. This is the avenue uh, by which God is revealing himself because it's familiar. God's a good teacher. He chooses a medium that they recognize. Well, in that medium, the, the vassal, that would be us, the stewards, uh, we're given a certain amount of dominion, but it is dominion that is curtailed by the authority of the suzerain. We don't get to plug, we don't get to color outside the lines. So, I actually find this motif very helpful. Yes, humanity has been given dominion, but the dominion we've been given is supposed to be a direct reflection of the one who has the ultimate dominion. So I talk about that seventh day, right? And God has shown himself to be the ultimate sovereign of the universe, and he has um, a gifted humanity with a certain amount of that authority. But that authority is, is constantly 
to reflect back on the character of the suzerain himself. So the stewardship we have, the dominion that we have, the authority that we have has been given to us mm-hmm. by just some divine force, but an actual person, a person who has boundaries on his personhood and the boundaries of his personhood is that he is the one who gives water to the wild creatures in the desert. He is the one who defends the mother bird um, on the side roads of ancient Israel. He's the one who commands humanity to give their livestock a Sabbath rest. He's the one who says, what are you doing cutting down trees when you're at war? I, I thought you were at war with that city, not with my flora and fauna, hands off, dude. Um, so if that's God's character, our stewardship cannot go outside of his character. So I, I don't find it an issue, but I would love for you to push back and, and tell me an argument that bypasses that. Or Yeah, that's helpful, Sandra, because, yeah, if you just read the stewardship um, there in Genesis without the wider framework of scripture and without the wider framework of the character of God, then you're left with that lens of perhaps colonial exploitation and some of the rightful critique that has been laid at the door of the church for how it has treated land and places and peoples in those lands. Yeah. And so stewardship along those lines can come across in a totally different way than it's intended from scripture. People like Richard Bauckham, they, they have pushed back a little bit on stewardship to say that it can sometimes leave no space for wilderness and stewardship can be interpreted in, in, a, in a way that it's, you're trying to kind of landscape and artificially kind of manicure the world around us. But, but actually, there's, there has to be space for wilderness and wildness in God's creation. But I don't, I don't see that as necessarily... Um, contradicting or a problem when it when stewardship is unpacked in the way that you've just answered this question or the way that you unpack in your book and the and hierarchy I thing too is sometimes tackled by people like Ruth Valerio um, uh-huh. yeah but again I, I think you tackle this in your book in a helpful way along the lines of the Old Testament and the character of God and through the rest of scripture and I have so much respect for Richard Bauckham and his courage on this point. And I would totally, uh, totally agree with him that there needs to be room for wilderness because there needs to be room for habitat. Mm. That um, so many of these animals that we would love to have them live in our backyards. Reality is they can't live in our backyards. And so good stewardship of these animals, their survival, their capacity to breed and produce themselves, that um, ideological nugget that comes through in that Deuteronomic law about if you find a wild bird sitting on a nest, you can, you can take her eggs, but you have to leave her. Although these are, are you know, little laws, which are, are used as analogias, um, an opportunity to, to present an idea with, uh, with one small concrete example, the ideology reigns uh, throughout the biblical text that, yes, to protect because we have to protect the things that thrive in wilderness mm-hmm. and the things that thrive in wilderness are not just the creatures you know the the amazon rainforest is such a perfect example it's our carbon sink if mm-hmm. we don't allow the rainforest to thrive 
we will not thrive. If we don't allow the Ganges River system to cleanse itself and thrive, there's civilization that shuts down around this. So I totally agree with him. I just, I think, and I can see the point that stewardship could be read as a master gardener who's attempting to landscape the entire planet. I see the master gardener as someone who realizes in their wisdom and the, the guiding wisdom of the almighty that we need wilderness as well. Mm. So, if, mm. Yeah, no, that's very helpful. And I think stewardship language it doesn't necessarily it doesn't take away that sense of our own creatureliness it doesn't necessarily mean an unhelpful or unbiblical hierarchy although we are created in the image of god we are still part of creation and we have that creatureliness that connects us with the rest of creation but it's still stewardship can still be that responsibility can still be handled and worked out in a way that is pleasing to the living God and creator of all things. Mm. When we think in terms of a, of a God that went through the profound investment of creating duck-billed platypuses, I mean, some of the creatures that, that God has created are so fantastic in every sense of that word. Why would we think as those made in the image that we can simply eradicate these species and their ability to support themselves. It, we serve at the pleasure of the Almighty. We mm-hmm. <laughs> um, perception and 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 really what what you're referring to is so much of that early literature. The you know the Lynn White article on how Christianity is the most anthropocentric religion ever to grace the planet. Um, I don't think Lynn White truly understood the scripture and. Often the church doesn't truly understand the scripture, right? We read the part we like and we ignore the part we don't like. Or or can I say we read the part that resonates with our current cultural ideologies and we miss everything else. Mm-hmm. When we all know with the history of revival that the only way the church has ever reawakened to do what she was supposed to do is because scripture managed to invade our cultural ideologies and, and call us on the carpet. You know, and this goes back to Josiah's revival, Luther's revival, and whatever revival is happening this week on the South Coast of California. Um, yeah. Yeah, no. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so a couple of quick fire questions for you. Do you have a favorite meal? Favorite meal, as in food? Yes. Mm, there is, there is, very little food that I've met in my life that I dislike. Um, <laughs> as, as my friend Joe Titone, you can tell by his name, a good Italian boy used to say, for a little a person, you really can eat. Um, so uh, I love food. I, my, my household has become largely vegetarian. Mm-hmm. Um, some of it is uh, certainly uh, ethical commitments. Um mm-hmm. Some of it is I just know too much. And so every trip to the meat counter for me becomes a research event, you know, looking for the label <laughs> around and are they humanely raised and are there antibiotics and which massive mega corporation has actually brought this poor creature to the shelf? So there's not a lot of meat consumed in my household, but I'm married. I have a man folk living in my house and um, he's like sausage. What can I say? <laughs> I, um, yeah. Uh, 
One of my hopes, and perhaps I'm way too idealistic, is in the States at least, uh, the number one thing we understand is capitalism. Mm -hmm. And I am encouraging the people in my audience constantly, vote with your checkbook, vote with your checkbook. Buy in a fashion that the local family farm can survive. Buy in a fashion that animals are treated humanely and our earth is not drenched with chemicals it can never recover from. Yeah, that might not have been where you were going, but. No, it's all good value. Um, okay. What about music? Uh, do you have a favorite band? Oh, wow. Okay. So I am quite eclectic. Um, <laughs> I love Billy Joel. I love Jim Croce. I, okay, you're going to throw things at me. I have teenage girls in my house. Mm -hmm. I am so pleased with the transition in Justin Bieber's life. Um, and I I know, I know. I love folk music, anything that's got a story. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't mind, uh, yeah, quite eclectic. Uh, one of my trips to the Southeast, which I'm associated with a, a church and a conference down in Florida that is led by an amazing man named Daryl Williamson. And he's a leader in the black church and mm. just he's doing great things to the kingdom. Okay. So while I was at his church and get this, okay. Southeast, this Florida we're talking about. And if you know our politics, um, they're about as Republican as you get. Okay. Mm. So Florida black church reformed gospel coalition and mm. Daryl and me who he's never met to come speak on environmentalism. I'm like, dude, you get yourself fired. <laughs> and we had, we had a, we had a revival. And by the time I was done presenting again, I expected the room to blow up this lovely matriarch of the clan. And if you know the African-American church, uh, the matriarch of the clan is critical. She stands up with her cane and repreaches my sermon for me and is turning around the room and telling everybody to get their act together. And if I had, oh my gosh, she was awesome. Okay, so in that juncture, I met KB. His name is Kevin Burgess, but he's my mm -hmm. first. Um, and uh, he's, he's a, a fabulous young man. He is completely reformed, which I just find hysterical. I mean, like a whole five point reformed. And he's hottest Christian he raps rappers on tulip. out there right now. What's that? He raps on tulip. He does. He does. And um, so I enjoy him as well. You should look him up. He's lots of fun. And he also has very cute children, which is always important. Oh, that's fascinating. That's great. I was interviewed recently on the topic of reconciliation. And then I was asked, what's your favorite band? And I said, the Killers. And it kind of, <laughs> the, the interview didn't seem to go well after that. But anyhow, you didn't embarrass yourself. That's really brilliant. Thank you. And Okay, actually, so, you, so we're okay with Billy, Billy Joel on both oh, sides? Yeah. Of the well, I'm a big fan of Billy Joel. I, I, I learned the piano listening to Billy Joel. Do you have a favorite hymn? Yes, I saw that one. And I wanted to come up with something very traditional. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just put out a curriculum on the Psalms. So I was spending a lot of time in our hymnody. And right now, at this moment, my favorite hymn, if I'm allowed to call it one, is Andrew Peterson's Do You Feel the World is Broken? Oh, it's so beautiful. It's kind of um, like a responsive reading and, and very folky. And I love folk music. Uh, it's a response. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. 
we, he goes through our current state of affairs and he says, but do you know that all the darkness can't keep the light from coming through? We mm-hmm. do. Every time I have it on my running list, I have it on my classroom playlist. Uh, every time I, I play it, I'm like, okay, yeah, the world is broken. Mm-hmm. Um, but can the darkness actually keep the light from coming through? No, it can't. Mm-hmm. And of course, as the children of the kingdom, this is our ultimate responsibility is to be optimists. Yeah. Because we know that we're going to lose a whole bunch of battles, but we're going to win. more. And our job is to be light in a dark place and salt in a flavorless place. And even on this topic, you know, this beautiful topic of uh, speaking up for those who don't have voices. And I'm I'm thinking of endangered species and the black bear in Mississippi and the white rhino, you know, these creatures that don't have voices that we know they're going down. Does that relieve us of our responsibility to speak on their behalf? And and the answer, of course, is no. Uh, No more than it frees us of our responsibility to speak for the refugee or the homeless or the widow or the orphan. We go down swinging and we do it in the name of Jesus and it's okay. And, and that, is what Andrew Peterson's song does for me. Beautiful, beautiful. And what are you reading right now? Well, I'm always reading like six things, right? Um, I'm working on my Deuteronomy commentary. So there's a lot going on there. And a lot of that is, is very technical. I'm actually reading a book on reconciliation right now. And just generally how to, in everyday life, work on um, coming at problems together as opposed to polarizing. I don't know if this situation is the same in the UK, but um, the combination of our political crises and social media, the whole world is at each other's throats. One book I've read recently that addresses that is Ed Stetzer's Christians in an Age of Outrage. I've been reading the book, but my first read of it was probably three years ago. I honestly thought it was unnecessary three years ago. And now I'm thinking, oh my goodness, how how important this is. And I love the title, Christians in an Age of Outrage. Everyone wants to be angry about something. And my personal theory is because that divests the person who's screaming of any responsibility for the actual problem. Um, I think that's why uh, folk love to do it so much. I've been reading a lot on issues of racism partly because I teach in an undergraduate institution and partly because I'm, I'm heavily involved in Daryl Williamson's efforts and um, trying to get a handle on critical race theory and get a handle on how in the world did we get here. So a lot of that material is mostly articles because we, we really, um, I mean, we have, a, we, we have a books coming out in moves on the topic, but I I find most of the books very quickly written and therefore often either shallow or self-contradictory. I don't know about you. Just a couple of more questions. What should be what should be people's first step in responding to stewards of Eden? Mm. Just one step, what would you say? Well, as you all know, there's a section in the back that is resources for the responsive Christian. And I think it is important as we wade into these waters that we show grace and patience, right? Um, the fact that you all are invested enough to read this book and spend two hours discussing it shows that you are 
uh, well along the way in the journey. And, and in many ways, you already know too much too, right? I think we all need to wade into this topic like we wade into any other topic of sanctification. And again, I'm circling back to what the Christian community holds as authoritative. If I were struggling with, I'll make it really mellow, okay? I'm struggling with a bad temper, right? I am going to, on a daily basis, I'm going to confront that in prayer. I'm going to take small steps to move forward. I'm going to learn to bite my tongue. I'm going to read books that address it. I'm going to talk to people and try to make it right. I'm going to take steps in the right direction. If I move that up much higher on the food chain, let's say I'm a pornography addict. What am I going to do? Well, the first thing I'm probably going to do is confess my sin to someone. And the the next thing I'm going to put controls on my computer and I'm going to move an accountability structure into my life. So this is how sanctification works. And I think sanctification as regards environmental stewardship is similar. And we need to give people grace to move forward in this direction. We have to be aware. We have to actually recognize our sin. We have to repent. This is the Christian community, for goodness sake. And we need to recognize that what we're doing is trying to conform our lives to the image of the sun. And each one of those steps, I think, could appear small, but they, they build up. So with that appendix, I was hoping to give uh, the Christian community an array of steps forward where they, as an individual, can start making changes. You know how we love to listen for, to sermons for someone else, right? I heard a great sermon and you need to listen to it. I think one of our greatest points of testimony is I heard the sermon and I'm listening to it and I'm going to start making changes in my lifestyle. And uh, again, so much in the States and honestly, y'all do this so much better than we do. Our houses are too big. Our cars are too big. Our waste is outrageous. Our The amount of trash we produce is criminal. Uh, These are all things that the average human being can do something about. Mm -hmm. And then there are these champions that are out there who've been trying to make a difference for a very long time. The Sierra Club, the Nature Conservancy, the Audubon. Um, We can join forces with them knowing that we do not fully embrace all of their ideologies. Mm -hmm. But hey, I'm supporting orphans through an array of organizations because I'm concerned about the orphan. So we can do these things and take these steps forward, begin to affect our political systems and our economies and, you know, periodically really take a stand on something. Um, I I think, at least in my country, if the average citizen did those things, the change would be tremendous. And then, of course, the, um, you know, the movement's going to start. And as the movement begins, we'll at least hem in some of our crimes against this planet. Yeah, great, Sandra. That, I mean, that part of your book is so helpful because it provokes us to think practically about working out what we've just read. But I'm sure there are things that you wished you'd been able to put into the book and mm-hmm. your editor said, no, you've got to take that out. Or what could you give us a couple of things that you would have loved to have seen in the book, but it just get, didn't get included or, or something you wish you hadn't put in the book and you think should be out of it. <laughs> well, generally my, my take on that book is I wish that my editor had given me a couple more months to do one more run of edits. 
Um, now, granted, I'm a perfectionist and I might feel that way about most things. But in particular with that book, I my critique of the book is that my voice is uneven. Um, I go from a, a very academic voice to a very popular voice. And that is something that in if there is a second edition, I hope that I get to fix. So that's, that's my big critique of the book. Um, for adding things, every case study I put in there, I am second guessing myself. Should I have done something else? Uh, right now, I wish I had done more to address uh, plastic um, and uh, plastics, especially in our international dumping site that we call the ocean. Um, I wish, well, Okay, I wish I had plastics in there. I wish I had Amazon issues in there. So those are two case studies that I, I wish I had addressed more clearly. Uh, I think if I did a second run of the book, I would do a bit more with Dominion, uh, as you have asked, and flesh that out a bit more. Uh, so right now for myself, plastics, the fate of the ocean, um, a little bit more about the Amazon. And in particular, I would love to... I would actually love to do on-site research and uh, be able to give firsthand testimony of what is happening uh, with the marginalized. Because I think the church is much more primed to respond to the individual than they are to the environmental setting. And it's very, very hard for them to put these two things together. I'm hoping that I accomplish that with mountaintop removal, coal mining. So those are things I would definitely change. A lot of people ask me why climate change isn't in the book. And in fact, I, I have to speak on that in the next couple of weeks. So I took my lead on that from Matthew Sleeth. Uh, you probably know his name, for God Save the Planet. Uh, Blessed Earth is his organization. He's a lovely, lovely man. Um, and his, his wife is even better, Nancy Sleeth. Um, so Matthew's posture is... If he starts talking climate change, everybody jumps into politics and he loses his audience and he loses his conversation. So he won't touch it. So I heard that coming from him. And then if I'm going to offer a biblical theology, uh, the Bible has no idea that the climate could be impacted. It's not in there. Reality is all of the steps of stewardship that we can take just on the ground in conserving our use of fuel, keeping industry honest, living conservatively, living with Sabbath. I think that's huge in this mix. Restrained productivity, restrained production, living with Sabbath. That those actions, those postures would resolve the climate change issue. So I'm, you know, I'm hoping that I'm building a platform that gives people the theological wherewithal to step into that topic i don't know i'd love to from y'all if you think yeah. climate change i think you are i think you are and if you write another book you we would love to bring you into um the east asia context and introduce you to some potential case studies in east asia that would be that would be ideal but maybe we could talk okay. about that another time Thanks for listening to this episode of the Surveyor podcast. If you found it interesting, why not share it with a friend? Do check out the show notes for links to resources that were mentioned. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. 
a little reminder to find us on Instagram. And if you've got any feedback, feel free to email us at uk.podcast at omfmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to speaking to you on the next episode.